Let's join in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to think about your word. Uh, We need wisdom, we need help uh, to think about it rightly. And we pray that your spirit would lead me as I speak and preach and lead us to know the Lord Jesus and to trust him. We pray in his name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever thought why it is that you suffer from your brain being tired. Do you suffer from brain tiredness? It's become a bit of a thing actually and here's the reason why. Researchers have come up with a figure of the amount of decisions we have to make every day. Wait for it. 35,000 decisions every day. For some people like CEOs and surgeons and people who tell planes when and where they can land, that number is probably much higher. Just think about it. On any given day, you are dealing with everything from fairly simple decisions like what will I put on my toast this morning to extremely stressful and impactful decisions like where will I land this plane or should I operate on this person? It's no wonder that for some people the number of decisions they have to make in a day can get so overwhelming that by the time they get home they can't face any more decisions and can barely decide what to have for dinner. Decisions, decisions, decisions. They're all around us and so are consequences. Consequences follow decisions. We saw this in particular in the life of David when we looked at his story a number of years ago and we saw how David had to live with the consequences of many decisions that he probably lived to regret. Even in our study so far from 1 Kings, some of those consequences have reared their ugly heads in David's life. We've seen that struggle for power between his son Adonijah and his son Solomon. And though now in this section of 1 Kings 2, as we noted last week, that David's earthly life has come to an end, these verses before us this morning, the rest of this chapter, tell us some more about the consequences of decisions that people made. Even in some cases towards David, decisions that had terrible ramifications and consequences, yes, costing people their lives. Now over these last few weeks we've been following the story of the succession of Solomon to the throne. David's earthly life has just ended. Solomon is now king and David's closing words, final words, last words to Solomon were about dealing with those subversive elements which would challenge his rule and his reign. And this text records for us the consequences that came to three particular individuals who chose their own kingdoms 
over God's kingdom, who did not want to submit to God's king and pursued an idol of their own hearts. Now I'll be first to say that the chapter isn't pretty by any means. As we read it, we noted a fair bit of bloodshed, a fair bit of what we might say an eye for an eye. But this is the Old Testament and these kind of responses were all part and parcel of life in Old Testament times. But having said that, we also need to note that it's more than just how things were because the text also fills us in on the choices that these people made, these men in particular. And it's because of this that rather being a text we can simply write off and ignore, it becomes one that conveys serious lessons about the decisions we make and the consequences that follow. And so this is the direction we'll take as we examine the decisions and the consequences of Adonijah, of Joab and Shimei and what they chose to pursue and the consequences that came their way. Now before we do that, it might not be a surprise to you to hear that the morality of Solomon's actions in the chapter have been questioned. I think that's quite understandable. After all, the shedding of blood is a serious business. But the point of these actions are not given us to sling mud in the new king's face, but to see the lengths that he went to secure his throne as per the promise of God to David his father. So the text is bookended by two key verses. Did you see that? Verse 12, so Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. And then verse 46, it finished and so Solomon, the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. Those two bookends. And given that, we understand this account in the light of its purpose and we allow the details to show us how Solomon's throne became secure. Let's think about these three men and then we'll apply it some more. First, let's consider Adonijah's choices and consequences in verses 13 to 19. Now, if you remember, Adonijah was the one who had attempted to steal Solomon's throne in the last chapter and who eventually, reluctantly, bowed the knee to Solomon, but was not altogether submissive in his outward submission. Verse 15 gives the impression that Adonijah retained some strong feelings that he ought to have been king. Strong feelings about this kingship falling to his half-brother. And he acts in these verses to get in the limelight once more. And he did this by approaching the king's mother, not the king himself, to ask a favour. And his request is couched, do you see this, in the light of his losses. So making this request seems like a reasonable compensation for what he'd missed out on. Hear him say this, you know that the kingdom was mine, well it was never his that all Israel fully expected me to reign, 
all Israel? I don't think so. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you, do not refuse me. How can I refuse you? You just said, don't refuse me. Now, before we get to his request, let's stop and look at how he justifies his rebellion. The lie he tells to Bathsheba to make his request sound understandable is the same lie that we tell ourselves when we downplay our own sins. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all things. And so this is the way your heart lies to you about your sins. You didn't get what you really wanted. Even though there are those who agree with you that you should have got it. Now you poor little thing, you deserve a compensation price. Here's an indulgence, go and sin freely. You've heard of comfort eating after some kind of disappointment. Well, this is like that, but it's comfort sinning. To justify the hurts that we've endured. And what of his request? Well, he asked for Abishag, the Shunammite, to be given to him in marriage. Who was she and what was the significance of this request that got Solomon so upset and angry? Well, we met Abishag in chapter 1. She was the girl who won the beauty contest with the first prize of keeping King David warm. She was David's royal concubine. Now, two things would have driven Adonijah to this request. First, her looks. She was the most beautiful girl in Israel. And secondly, it was common custom to stake your claim on a conquered king's kingdom by sleeping with one of his concubines. We've seen this before. This was Absalom's tactic when he tried to take the throne from David his father to Samuel 16. Now remember this, that Solomon had shown mercy to Adonijah. Solomon had spared him from death for high treason. So consider this request in that light. When you've been spared death, do you dare go and ask the king for something you shouldn't have? Rather than returning his brother's kindness, he sought permission to not only have the girl, but placed himself in pole position to take over the throne. That God had just said, you can't have it. So there are idols in Adonijah's heart. Lust and power. If it's an idol that is identified by what makes you mad, bad, glad or sad, think about that, then it's that Adonijah was sad over what God said he could not have and was willing to be bad in defying the will of God and get it back again. Let me ask you these questions in the light of Adonijah's response. Do you feel you deserve a little spoiling every now and then? A little sinful indulgence here or there. You've served the Lord hard. You've worked hard for the Lord. Maybe you've even suffered for him. Maybe you feel like you haven't been rewarded. 
Or another way, do you have your heart set on something, either as a married or a single man or woman in the area of lust, that you feel quite justified in pursuing? Something that's not for you. Remember, our hearts are deceitful and they can spring upon us the delusion that the idols of lust and power are worth pursuing. Because that's the standard of what the world teaches us. Forgetting entirely that God wants us to be our all in all and that those who pursue holiness are the happiest. Now we're not told what Bathsheba thought, only what, that she said she would speak to the king. Perhaps she even knew how Solomon would respond and she was probably right. Solomon was incensed and said to his mum, And why do you ask for her to be his wife? Why not ask him, sorry, why not ask for the kingdom for him also? And seeing through the request for what it was, the king sent Benaiah to strike him down and he died. The wages of sin, says Paul in Romans 6, is death. Second, considers Joab's choices and consequences. In verse 28 we read, When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Abijah, though he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught caught hold of the horns of the altar. Joab's one of those interesting characters in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, A man you can never seem to pin down as being, say with confidence, well, he's a true believer. He was certainly loyal to a fault when it came to David the king, but he seemed to have religion as a bit of a veneer. He was more than happy to be behind the sword in a fight than be behind David in worship. He was also an angry and a violent man who was skilled as a fighter and a leader, making the position of being the general of David's army a good fit. And in that position, he was the sort of person you wanted fighting for you and not against you. But this was his weakness as well as his strength. Because he saw himself as a fighting man and made to be that general His view of himself led him to all sorts of questionable actions, as we noted in the studies of 2 Samuel, the role he played in the murders of Abner and Amasa. Joab also helped David murder Uriah when it could be put that that action put David in Joab's debt and strengthened his position in the army. But he would disobey David when it did suit him. So Joab was defined by this role as warrior and general and to live without those roles seemed to strip him of his identity. He depended upon it for his significance, his satisfaction and these were his idols. So when Abijah had approached him to help him become king, a Joab had to quickly decide whether he wanted to be in the army under a man who would give him back the position he cherished or not in the army at all. So acting out of his own interests, 
that shaped what he did and what he lived for? He said yes to Adonijah. Of course, we're all like that to an extent, aren't we? How we see ourselves shapes how we act. It shapes our values, our morality and our actions. Who are you? What defines you? Do you see yourself primarily as a human being made in the image of God? Do you see yourself one who has been made to be in fellowship with God? Is your happiness, your identity, your purpose found in doing his will? See, we live in a world now, in a culture, so much so that people are no longer able to answer those questions. Where is the identity to be found? Who am I? Why am I here? With the denial of all outside authority, the Bible's answers to these questions have long been jettisoned. And this generation more than any other is being told that the only truth they can trust is the one they discover within themselves. When all along our true identity has been found on the one hand in being made in God's image and on the other hand being the object of God's saving love. Even though that image of him in us has been so marred by sin. Joab's life was defined by the wrong choices. And for him, we are told, verses 29 to 35, it also ended in execution like the false king that he gave his allegiance to. What did Paul say? Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Thirdly, verses 36 to 46, we read of Shimei's choices and consequences. King Solomon not only determined to do as his father instructed him to do in securing his kingdom with the deaths of Adonijah and Joab, but he went after Shimei big time. Again, let's refresh ourselves with Shimei's story. He was an influential man from the tribe of Benjamin who had cursed David in the time of his kingship when he was fleeing from Absalom and pelted him with rocks. When he acted this way towards David, the king was at his lowest ebb and was not able to do much in terms of avenging those who were rebellious against him. But on his deathbed, he put that responsibility, as we heard last week, on Solomon's shoulders to carry out what needed to be done. So Solomon did what he thought was right. He placed Shimei under a kind of house arrest and restricted him from ever leaving Jerusalem again. And if he did, that he would be put to death. And Shimei responded to this, as we read in verse 38, with a certain measure of polite acceptance. What the king says is good. And for three years he abided by that regulation, probably thankful that the king had spared his life. He was able to continue living, even if under house arrest, and rather have his head removed from his shoulders. He was a man who deserved to die, but was given probation. In verse 42, Shimei swore by the Lord's name that he would abide by this agreement. And then there's the but. 
There's always a but, isn't there? Not for long. He ultimately had no regard for the honour of God's name by which he had sworn compared to the state of the financial prosperity of his household. See, in verse 39 we're told that two of his servants ran away and were discovered some distance away in Gath. And Shimei, with no regard for the vow that he had made, nor even seeking special permission from the king, nor even sending other members of his household to go and collect his servants, ventured out to reclaim his property. And so for him, whether it was a lack of judgment or a moment of complete forgetfulness, obeying the king and honouring the Lord's name were less important than the loss of his slaves. He had been warned at the risk of his life not to leave but turn back on his word for the sake of financial gain and also got what the king said would be his if he disobeyed. Let's bring that closer to home. Are there times when you've set aside your own principles to get dishonest gain? Have you ever allowed the love of money to dominate your life and your choices? Have you ever set aside the demands of God's word as being inconvenient because they interfere with your financial plan? Shimei reminds us that Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Shimei joined the ranks of men like Judas, whose lives were set in greed and covetousness as idols. Shimei reminds us that the love of money is the root of all evils and that money itself, though it is a useful servant, is a terrible master. So for Shimei, as with Adonijah, as with Joab, the wages of sin was So we come to the end of chapter 2 and we have, as we have seen, the fates of these three men established. Each of them called to submit to God's will and accept God's king, but each instead submitting to idols of their own choices. Let's recap. For Adonijah, it was the idols of lust and power. For Joab, it was the idols of position and authority. For Shimei, it was the idols of money and possessions. And in each of their actions, we see a clear demonstration of what our hearts are prone to do. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all things. And if let by itself, unchanged and unconverted, By the Spirit of God, it will lead you astray. They say, follow your heart, but what if it lies? What we've seen in each case, when we choose idols of our own making, death is the consequence. Three times I've quoted the text, the wages of sin is death. But now we need to complete the sentence. But the free gift of God 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Such is his grace in saving idolaters with his own blood so that our blood does not need to be shed. And just as Solomon's kingdom was established by putting all his enemies under his feet, so too we remember that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus will come and the day will come when all our choices and all their consequences, they will matter for all eternity. See, when the king comes, he will act in justice. He will not let sin just go past unnoticed and unpunished. The best decision is therefore the most obvious one. Submit willingly to the king before the day comes when you are forced to submit to him against your will. And let go of idols and do not follow your heart lest it lead you astray. Will you do that? Let's do that. Let's pray. We give you thanks, our gracious God, that in your word we have advice that is worthy of note and instruction, more than advice, the path to life. We have heard and read today of men who failed to heed the king's instructions for them, your instructions. They allowed the idols of lust and power and position and authority and money and possessions to be more important than submitting themselves to the rightful king. And we remember that Jesus is that rightful king, that when he comes, he will put all his enemies under his feet and all must appear before the throne, the judgment seat of Christ. We thank you that we are safe in him when we have submitted to him as rightful King and Lord. We pray for this world, for people we know outside of the kingdom who belong to another kingdom, perhaps of their own making and their own choosing, but are not serving the righteous King. Help us to learn these lessons well and we pray for this world in its loss of fear of you and the judgment to come. We give you thanks that we have a king who doesn't wield a sword against his people but who comes to rule in righteousness and mercy. These things we pray in his name. Amen.